Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Have a seat, but kind of stay in that posture of prayer uh, as you're seated there. I just want to guide us through a couple things that we could pray about here. And uh, the first thing, just in, where you're seated in your heart, would you just pray for somebody in your life that doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know Jesus is their Lord and Savior? Would you just pray that God would bring the gospel to them and, and save them and bring them to a saving relationship with Him? Pray for God to show you divine appointments, like divine moments that he's lined up for you to step into, to be that vessel, that, that mouthpiece and hands and feet of the gospel to somebody, that person maybe you prayed for just a second ago. And if you came here today and you're like, what is he talking about? I don't don't understand this stuff, what you're saying about the gospel and Jesus. I just want you to know that God invites you to pray, to come to him. And you can just pour your heart out to him and come approach him and and talk about anything to him. And uh, you have freedom to do that here. Come to Jesus and, and just say those things to him. One last thing in your heart, instead of me praying this this week, would you pray that God's word would be enlightened to you, that you could understand it and that it would penetrate deep into your heart as, as we dig into God's word this morning. God, thank you for being so good to us and for showing us grace and mercy through the person of Jesus Christ, your son that you gave to us, gave up his life for us while we were yet sinners. God, we stand in awe of the fact that you would pour out that grace upon us that don't deserve it, that have lived rebellious lives, and yet you can pour out grace on us. Would you keep showing us yourself and keep guiding us into truth and into your place of life, that we would walk in paths of righteousness. God, we want you. We want to know you. And this morning, we thank you that you're here with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks to Bob Beaver, who last week shared God's word with us from Psalm 32 and painted, I listened to it online, he painted such a good picture of understanding God. If you struggle with this picture in your mind of a God who is angry at, at you, listen to that message. Bob poured out his heart in that message about the grace and forgiveness of God, and I just appreciate his bringing the word to us. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 23. If you have a Bible, please do turn there to Psalm 23. It's great to have the word in front of you, uh, not just up on the screen, but in front of you. I'm a visual person, so when I go home, I can still kind of picture the page and, and that kind of thing, and many of us, I think, are wired that way, and it's just kind of helpful to have that in front of us. It will be on the screen, though. In the last decade, I have lost three of my four grandparents. And there was one thing that was true in all of their memorial and funeral services is that this Psalm 23 was either read or referenced in those those services. 
this psalm is one of the most well-known ones. It is one that we, has been called the, the sweetest song ever sung. It's been called the song of the souls of men. It's been called the psalm everybody knows. It's the psalm, a favorite psalm of many of us probably in this room. Many of us have looked at Psalm 23 in the past, and I bet a bunch of us have memorized it. How many of you have memorized Psalm 23 at one point or another in your life? Not that you can recall it right now, but you memorized it, right? So when we read it, you'll recognize the words. They'll they'll be fresh to you as you look at that. As we look at it today, just remember that this psalm has brought comfort to God's people from the time of its writing through the Old Testament period after David, all the way up through the church, the New Testament church, the, the day we stand in. And it's brought comfort to God's people because of something unique about it. One, it's really personal. It's a psalm that's very personal. As you read it, there's something in David that you just can't help but be drawn to the expression of David's love for God and the the abiding goodness of God's presence with David. You'll see it when we read it. The other part of this is that this psalm just proclaims God's goodness and it draws us to it. When we see the goodness of God, we can't help but start running to it. Going, God, I need that. Show me more of it. Show me your grace. Show me your mercy. And David expresses it so well in this psalm as we get into it. Now, I want you to observe three things as we start. Three big, bold statements that David makes in this psalm. The first one is found in verse 1 when he says, I shall not want. That's a big, bold statement. Verse 4, he says, I will not fear. Another big and bold statement. And then the third one in verse 6, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Another bold statement. Now, does David feel these things at every moment of his life? I wish I could go back and ask him, but just based on being a Christian, walking with God, my guess is David doesn't always feel that way. But David is holding on to a confidence in who God is and the character of God. Therefore, he can make those statements as truth, even though his feelings sometimes vary depending on his circumstances. Let's read Psalm chapter 23 and look at it, and then I'll explain to you how we're going to dig into this psalm today and what we're going to do in our, our remaining time together. Psalm chapter 23, it's God's word. It reads to us this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, And he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. That's God's word. Now, this is Hebrew poetry written to us, given to us by God's, by God's voice. He penned this through David. When we read poetry, we can do something in church really bad. We can turn it all into a moral lesson for us to gain and walk away from. The intent of the Psalms are not lessons for us. Instead, they are expressions. They they help us express something about God. We learn about God in them, yes, but they should result in a praise, in a worship that comes out of us. We would destroy Psalm 23, this Psalm that we 
know and are very familiar with, if we just come to it in a very cognitive way, trying to gain intellect about this psalm, and they go, that was a great sermon. Thanks for telling me these things. The goal today actually is very different. As I've been praying through how we would approach this psalm, I believe that God wants us to look at this, but then spend a chunk of time towards the end of this, this service that we blocked out to be with God and be able to express the same kind of heart as David has. And so we're going to take some time to do that towards the end of this, and it's in that vein that I approach it. We're going to go a little bit quicker through this psalm so that we have that time at the end. Two things that David has experienced about God. It's an invitation to come towards God, and these two invitations. One is to come towards him to be led with God being the shepherd and David being the sheep. Us being the sheep, God being the shepherd. That's the first invitation, and we see that expressed in David. He loves to be led by God. The second one is this, is to be with God at a banquet. God is the host. Jesus is the one laying out this feast before us. And we come into his presence to be with him. When I was a kid, I lived in a, in a neighborhood that had woods behind the house. And in the summer months like this, we spent most of our days out in those woods playing and running around and uh, just, just having a great time building forts, building trails. We had bike trails all through there. We had a blast in those woods. About 5.30 every single day, my mom would use this ability, this special talent that God had given her, to whistle, and I swear you could hear that whistle a mile away. When, when Linda Wiggins whistled, every kid in the neighborhood could hear it. So whether I was way up in the woods or I was three houses down at Zach and Nate's, I could hear this whistle. It would just ring out. She could do it with her mouth. She could have been a referee. I think she'd have been a great referee. Stop the whole game. And, uh, but she would whistle. We'd come running back, and it was a callback. We were led back home, led to our place where we belonged, and we were led to the dinner table where there we were able to feast, to be together as a family. It was kind of a centering point. And it's one of the things I love about my parents, one of the things they did. And I, I, if you're starting a young family, I would just challenge you, bring your family together for dinner. Make that a priority because there's something special that happens about the dinner table. We'll come back to that in just a minute when it pertains to that in the psalm here. But it was a calling back. It was a leading, and it was a being with in our family. Now, David writes this psalm once again, not just in isolation of his life, but he's writing it in the context of his life. And once again, in this psalm, like a lot of the psalms, David is in a horrible place. It's interesting that David seems to find God most and have these grand expressions of God when he's going through struggle. What about you? Where do you find God the most? I find it interesting that many of my prayers start, as an American, start like this. God, keep us safe. Help me to stay away from problems. Keep our family healthy. And we pray like that. But it's interesting that David, yeah, though he's, there's some petition for protection, in his struggles, he's finding the richness of God. That's why we could say with James when that book was written, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my trials of many kinds. We can embrace those because it's in the crux of life that we seem to find God. It's in trials. A.B. Simpson, the founder of, of the Christian Missionary Alliance, went so far as to say there is no way of learning faith except by, by trial. Imagine that, that really I couldn't live find faith apart from going through some 
hard times? It's in those hard times David was finding God to be very real, to be very present, to find his grace, his mercy was on the crux of those moments. And I don't know where you're living today, but I want to give you hope in the fact that this came, this psalm came from that. He's living in the midst of that, those trials, and one of the things he's battling is a, is a thing internally that we call fear. Internally, he's battling fear, a fear that would cause him to drive away and, and fall away and just kind of lead, fear leads to fear, and it would just cycle in him for his life. I mean, he's afraid, and it could have been written, this psalm might have been written when Saul was chasing him. It might have been written when his son Absalom was chasing him. They both wanted to kill him. Imagine the fear. Fear has played a very big role in our lives since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3. Fear was introduced at that moment. What was Adam and Eve's first reaction? They wanted to go and hide, right? Hide out of fear of being seen, the shame of God knowing what they had done and who they now were. So there was a fear of God that was introduced, a fear of other people, a fear of really being seen, a fear of our own problems, even a fear of fear. Perhaps there was a fear, and we all struggle with this too, a fear of the unknown future. Or fear of failure, or fear of faith risk. Fear is a very real part of the human life. But fear offers a crux for us to move towards the invitation of God, or to move more to being the self-made person, or wallowing and falling down into a hole of fear. God calls us to faith in Him, and David so richly illustrates this with these two pictures that he describes. The first one is that of of a shepherd. And God invites us in this illustration to be led. I want you to look back at your Bibles again at the first couple of verses in this psalm. Verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It seems very counterintuitive that the call of God is to be led. Because human nature, human sin nature, is to lead ourselves. We have this craving, this desire to figure it out, even as Christians, to think, I can lead myself to God. I, if I clean myself up, if I do the right things, I can get to God. But God says, I will come meet you where you are at, and I will begin to lead you. That's God's way. It's always upside down from what we typically would think in this world. And so that's the approach that David begins to describe. So in verse 1, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Hold on a second. The Lord. We don't want to buzz past that word. That word is so critical to this. This word, the Lord, this name, this title, that brings definition to the object of David's delight, the Lord. This name that should awaken our souls, that today is is magnified, is, is, is revealed in the person of Jesus. The Lord, or Jesus, is my shepherd. Consider the character of this name. This covenant keeping God. This one who brings grace, who's the provider who brings security for his people, who redeems his people. This name that is the river of life, 
this name that describes this God of love and of compassion and patience and forgiveness. David says, you are my shepherd, Lord. And it's a very personal end. You, Lord, are my shepherd. God is his shepherd. Not another person. Not himself. He didn't say, oh, I'm my own shepherd. I shall not want. God is his shepherd. He doesn't say, the stuff I do is my shepherd, or the things I want or turn to in my life are my shepherd. God is his shepherd. It's personal. And David loves his God. This God is his shepherd, and he fills out this picture throughout that really, if we understand the New Testament, is a description of Jesus as New Testament Christians, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the object of our affection. Jesus is our shepherd. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a shepherd. And the best position for you to be in as a sheep is not in front of the shepherd, not even so much beside the shepherd, but being led by the shepherd in the paths that he wants you to take and in his provision. And so David begins to describe this satisfied soul of his as he is in this led, being led position. We're afraid to be led so often in our life. But God calls us, he beckons us to this position of allowing him to be out front and set the course and show us and provide for us. And for us to be in a place of dependence is not weakness. It's the best place we can be. It's the best place. It's a place of finding strength in God. It's realism. It's reality. You're delusional if you think you can lead yourself. And so David wants to live that way. And he says about this description of Jesus being his shepherd, I shall not want. Do you realize that in Christ you lack nothing? His grace is enough. His provision is enough. His mercy is enough. And as Christ being the shepherd, he's personally concerned with your welfare. You. Out of all the people in the world, he's concerned about you. And he guides you as a shepherd. Now David, you can understand, he, he lives in fear because his life could be taken. In a sense, there is this trembling of what if I could be killed by Saul or Absalom or whoever it was that was causing this fear in him at that moment? And you can understand why we live in the valley of the shadow of death, right? Everything around us is the shadow of death. It's decaying. It's declining. It's, it's groaning, waiting for the redemption of humanity, the redemption of the world. And in the middle of this, if you take God out of it, it looks bleak. But David says, I will fear no evil. He can embrace God because his confidence is in who God is, not in the circumstances around him. And so verses 2 and 3 begin to describe God's provision and the character and this nature of God and this relationship that he has with God. So we see a number of things of what God does in this relationship. He says that God makes him lie down. He says that God restores and that God guides Think about those three things for just a second. The power of those. What else in this world can do that? Nothing. This holistic supply for the entire person 
body, mind, soul, character, emotion, all that makes up you. God supplies and he cares for those things and he nurtures those as the shepherd. He makes them lie down, brings them to good pastures. Think about that, good places, green places. In his provision, he defines where those places are. He brings us to quiet waters, meaning rest and nourishment for your soul. How come we're such a disturbed people? God wants to give us rest and nourishment for our souls. And I see here too, he restores the soul. What grace that he would restore our souls. What grace that through the cross, through the provision of Christ, he could restore our souls. The brokenness of who we are being able to be restored. Think about that in light of where we stand today in Grand Junction. A couple of things about Grand Junction. We can love our valley while still being realistic about what the issues are here. I love Grand Junction. I love this area. But I know some of the issues here. First of all, we look around our valley, and our valley has one of the highest divorce rates across the country. People don't set out to get divorced. It's not like that's the choice, but it's the result. It's the manifestation of brokenness, right? Broken relationships, broken sin in our life, and just junk. God restores the soul. Think about it in light of this. We know that we live in a valley that has double the suicide rate as most of the country has. It's high. God is the answer. He restores the soul. He's, he's the, cl- the, the key to it. We live in a valley where alcoholism and chasing after fulfillment through thrills and, and adventure is just prominent. And I can understand why people turn to those things if you don't know about Jesus, but we are so strategically placed with the gospel. Right here in Grand Junction, on purpose. River of life is to be an abundant life for this valley, to declare and proclaim the living water to this valley. Because the shepherd restores the soul. I love that. I'm so thankful for a God who does that. And he brings us to peace and tranquility before him. A place of settling for the soul where we can be okay before him. Where fear is not an issue. Because he is enough. And he stands ready to guide us into paths of righteousness. He stands ready to defend us with his rod and guide us with his staff. So when Christ says about us that, and about me that I'm his child, when he says that I'm alive or that I'm free or I'm a masterpiece or I'm Christ's ambassador or that I'm loved or that I'm chosen or that I'm a new creation or that I'm more than a conqueror, my confidence is not in myself. It's in my shepherd because he's the one who declares those things. He's the one who provides those things. When David has exhausted in those first couple of verses the illustration of being a shepherd, he pivots and he goes to a different picture, and that is the one around the dinner table. In verses 5 and 6, you see it there. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In these verses, we see an invitation that David has experienced, this invitation to the table where God has invited David to be with him. Something unique that happens over a dinner table. There's a place of commonality, a place of being together that is special, that brings bond and centering to life and families. And it's to a table that we are called. And there at that table to be with him, we come to the table and he begins the actions 
He invites us, as we are, to his table, and he begins to do the work. He begins to provide for. He is the one who dispenses the grace. And it's around this table, this beautiful picture here, that David describes this, in, and it makes me think, first of all, of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, but David's tense is not future, it's present. He's, he's experienced this table right now in his life. Do you? It's open. There's a place at the table for you. And it's at this place that things are poured out for him, that are given to him. These verses stand as a, a witness of God's infinite resources of what is available to us. And so, as, as David describes it this way, God anoints his head with oil. When, when the Haydens come to our house, we don't show up with a canola bottle and start pouring it on them. Although it would be kind of, maybe next time. But what happened in those days was when an honored guest would come, oil, fragrant oil, would be poured over their head, just a little bit, enough, to, like a perfume. It was a cleaning up. You come as you are, and that oil would begin to be poured out. It, and David goes on and he says his cup overflows, symbolizing that gracious and bountiful manner of entertainment that was going on there. Think about this for a second. We come to God with a cup wanting an ounce or two of his grace. When there are buckets to be poured out, barrels to be put in, he has so much to give to you in his grace, in his mercy, and we make him so small by thinking it could only be a little bit. Maybe we're afraid of the overflow. John Henry Jowett, an old dead preacher, said it like this. Someday I will be too. The ability of God is beyond our prayers, beyond our largest prayers. I have been thinking of some of the petitions that have entered into my supplication innumerable times. What have I asked for? I've asked for a cupful, and the ocean remains. I've asked for a sunbeam, and the sun abides. My best asking falls immeasurably short of my Father's giving. It is beyond what we can ask. Wow. Grace, mercy, God's goodness, his love poured out and bestowed upon you for a second. Think about that. As you are. And in that, when you experience that, God beckons you in and in his presence you're changed. You don't change before you come in. In his presence you get changed. And in his presence you find fullness of joy. In his presence you will find God himself. You'll find Jesus so there's an invitation that David is describing that he has found that I think is the same invitation we have to see today to be led and to be with. And so we want to come be with God a little bit today. I would like to guide us through just a time of being with God in prayer this morning. And then finish by listening to a song and then we'll close together in, in a worship song. But this exercise is one that I have learned in the past but was kind of recently reintroduced to and I think you'll find it very rich. It's called closed hands, open hands. There's nothing magical in that. It's just the idea of I'm doing something physical that describes what I'm doing inside. We're going to be, our eyes will be closed. No one's going to see you do this. Who cares if somebody sees you do this? But no one will see you, okay? This exercise, though, will help you sit in God's presence and hear his voice. Even if you haven't prayed in ages, you can do this, okay? 
Most of us struggle, though, when we try to put our minds on Christ because there's so many thoughts and stuff that we're always going through in life. It's really hard for us to sit still and just hear the still, small voice of God. Some people have said, I can't do it. But I believe you can. So I want you to do something. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? Just close your eyes. Where do your thoughts go when you're just being quiet when you just pause usually our thoughts will go to whatever is consuming our our mind and our heart at that moment for some people in here it might be the worries or concerns of the day for others you might be just daydreaming for some of you it i'm sure it's conflicts with other people Some in this room are probably insecure and you're comparing yourselves to other people. Maybe there's something that is causing you to fear and your mind immediately goes to that. As long as those things are at the forefront of your mind, you probably won't be hearing God's voice because there's too much noise going on. You can just keep your eyes closed for a little bit here. You remember in 1 Kings 19... God had told Elijah to go up on the mountain and that he would come and pass by him. Do you remember that passage? God God said he'd come by Elijah. Scripture told us that there was a great strong wind first. And that wind was so strong it ripped rocks apart. But God wasn't in the wind. And then there was an earthquake. The ground shook and it moved under Elijah's feet. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake either. Then there was a fire. Sometimes, don't you just wish that God would just send fire from heaven to get our attention and let us know it's him? But God wasn't in that fire either. Do you know what came next? It was the sound of a gentle stillness and a still, small voice. Think about that for a second. What does the sound of gentle stillness sound like? As a guide for our prayer here, there's a passage that's useful that is in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is talking here and he he says something to us. And you can keep your eyes closed and just focus on this verse. Come to me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden and overburdened, and I will cause you to rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest or relief and ease and refreshment and quietness. You'll find rest for your souls. Jesus said, for my yoke is wholesome. In other words, it's useful. It's not harsh, it's good. And my burden is light and easy to be borne. So what are you burdened with? What comes to mind when all of a sudden you're quiet? that feels heavy and sharp that you're carrying around. With your eyes closed there, I just want you to think of one of those things, and I want you to imagine putting that in your hand, as if you can take that thought and put it in your hand, and then close your fists over it. Hold on to it for a second. 
picture yourself just sitting before Jesus. Just imagine you're able to talk directly to him. You are able to any moment, but just picture that you're sitting before him with your fists closed and begin to tell him what you're concerned about. Pour out your heart to him about it. What is this thing that you're struggling with? I'm going to be quiet for a second. As you've done that, now ask him what his perspective is on what you just told him. What does he want you to know about this? Ask him that. Now that you've heard his perspective on your concern, it's a lot easier to let go of. And so just kind of in that symbolic way, just open up your hands. And I always picture it just like thump onto the ground in front of Jesus. Or maybe he takes it out of your hands. But it's easy to give that over to him and lay that to him once he's talked to you. So why don't you do that for just a second? Open your hands when you're ready. you look at open hands, they're in a spot where they're able to receive. And verse 29, when Jesus had said that to us, he tells us about a burden he gives, but his burden is life-giving, and it's full of joy, and, and there's good in it. it. It's an easy yoke, he says. Ask Jesus what burden he wants you to carry. What, what is the burden of his heart? What is he concerned about? And allow him to place that into your hands. me mm-hmm. 
God with you? Does that refresh the soul? On Friday night at 7 o'clock, we were sitting out on our porch in the back and just grabbing a bite for dinner. And as we were out there, both Rochelle and I's phones both got a notification at the same time, reminding us to respond to an invitation to Paige and Dylan's wedding dance. There's an invitation that sits out in front of us that we have a choice all the time. So beckoning, calling in, he's not going to force you in. But there's a call to come be with him, where the expression of your heart can be much like David's, and there's a refreshment for you in that. And you can choose to ignore it, or you can choose to respond to it and come towards it, and keep seeking him, and keep coming to be with him. And the outcome of that is good. You find Jesus in it. You find grace and mercy in it. And your heart will worship. You come away refreshed and restored with what you actually need.